Well, not only is chapter 24 of the book of Genesis the longest chapter in the book, being 67 verses, but it is also the longest single recorded event in Genesis other than the Noahic flood, which covered a total of 75 verses. This chapter is 67. The Noahic flood was 75 verses, but that was in three chapters. This is all confined in one. And this fact alone tells us that the episode of the quest for the bride for Isaac is not merely a heartwarming episode or account of a beautiful love story. It's much more than that below the surface. The wife of Isaac had to be selected with great care because she would take the place of Sarah as the promises to Abraham were continued on through his descendants. She would become, we could say, the newest mother of the forthcoming nation of Israel. Critically important was the fact that it would be through Isaac's new bride that the promised Savior of the world would come, you know, the promised seed of the woman that we learned about back in Genesis 3.15. Furthermore, chapter 24 gives us the greatest prophetic picture in all of the Bible of the Holy Spirit's job of calling out the church, the bride of Christ. So although this chapter tells a wonderful love story about a marriage arranged in heaven between a man and a woman, between Isaac and Rebekah, it is also a picture of an even greater love story of a marriage which was arranged in heaven between the Lord Jesus Christ, the bridegroom, and his bride, the church. Now, in last week's lesson, we covered the first 33 verses of this long chapter. We discussed Abraham's commission to his eldest servant, who we said was most likely Eliezer of Damascus, talked about back in Genesis 15:2, And that commission to the servant by Abraham was to go to Mesopotamia to Abraham's brother's family, Nahor, his brother, and find there a suitable wife for Isaac. We saw that in verse 4. And we learned how the servant, who was a very godly man, bathed his assignment in prayer and was rewarded by a very swift answer. Before he had even finished praying, in fact, we saw that Rebekah came out to the well. That was in verse 15. Now, seeing how the hand of divine providence had led him straight to Rebekah and Rebekah straight to him, he said in verse 27, I being in the way, and that doesn't mean he was blocking something. It means that he was on the path of obedience. I being in the way, on the path of obedience, the Lord led me. And that's pretty much what you and I can say, too. If we're on the path of obedience, the Lord will lead us. So we ended last week's lesson, which was entitled, as you saw up here, this was last week's, The Quest for Isaac's Bride. We left Eliezer seated before a meal as a guest in the home of Rebecca. Put this back up here. Yet rather than enjoying that meal... Abraham's very faithful and trusted, dedicated servant refused to eat until what? Right, until he had given the message, until he had spoken of his reason for being there. The whole purpose for his mission, the reason he had traveled some 500 miles from 
Hebron down in Canaan up to Haran in Syria. The whole reason for that was to seek a bride for his master's son, Isaac. And now that he believed that Rebekah, based on what happened at the well and the fact that she was the answer to a very specific prayer, now that he believed that Rebekah was the maiden, the damsel, to whom the Lord had led him, he would not eat until he had acquainted both the girl and her family with his message. So his first priority, which came even before his physical needs, was to give the message about his master's son. That should be our first priority as Christians, right? You know, he's a picture of the Holy Spirit. Well, the Holy Spirit indwells us. If you're truly a born-again believer, he's indwelling you. Your first mission, your first priority, even before your physical needs in some cases, should be to share the gospel message. So his first priority was to share about his master's son and about his own assignment to find Isaac a suitable bride and also about how the mighty hand of providence had led him straight to Rebecca and, of course, Rebecca straight to him. And then, of course, he would ask her family if they would give her hand in marriage to Isaac. We find that eventually Rebecca's family at least her brother and her mother, her brother Laban and her mother, they really, we'll see this in the lesson this morning, they really put the decision on her. Not at first, but we'll see eventually they do. So we might ask the question, did Rebecca actually believe a report from an old servant? Now remember these pictures aren't very accurate because if this was Eliezer, he was an old man, not young like in the pictures. Did Rebecca believe a report from an old servant whom she had only just met? Would she be willing to leave with him to go into a new land that she'd never been to, probably would never return from, in order to marry a man that she had never met or seen? This and more is what we are going to discuss in this lesson, which is called The Call of Isaac's Bride. And as you can see, there are three main divisions of our outline. First of all, in verses 34 to 49, we're going to consider the recap, which is Eliezer's summary about uh, not only Isaac the master's heir, but also about the mission assignment, which he was given by Abraham, and about the miracle answer. So it's going to be a recap of everything we really talked about last week in verses 34 to 49. And then, uh, in verses 50 to 54, we're going to look at the response. First of all, we will look at the response of Rebecca's family to the message of Eliezer. And then we're going to look at the response of the servant, Eliezer, to the response of the family. All right, that gets kind of confusing. But they respond to his message, and then he responds to their response. So that's what we'll be talking about in those verses. And then in the third part of our outline, the resistance, we're going to be looking at... uh, the resistance which resulted from Eliezer's determination to depart with Rebekah immediately the next morning, the morning after he had just met her at the well. He wants to get up and go. And so there was some resistance to that, and we'll learn how that resistance was overcome by Rebekah herself. So that's where we're headed. Let's start with the recap. And under this section, first of all, We'll talk about the master's heir, verses 34 to 36. 
34. It says, and he, that's Eliezer, said, remember what just happened in verse 33. He sat down to the meal, okay, and then he said he wouldn't eat until he had given his message. So Laban says, speak on. Okay, go ahead, speak. And so here's what Eliezer says. And he said, I am Abraham's servant, and the Lord hath blessed my master greatly, and he has become great. And he hath given him flocks and herds and silver and gold and men servants and maidservants and camels and asses. And Sarah, my master's wife, bare a son to my master when she was old. And unto him, the son, hath he, my master, given all that he hath. The primary emphasis here of Eliezer's message was really Isaac. He is the primary focal point, Isaac. Everything that Eliezer had to say was to magnify Isaac in Rebekah's hearing, in her, in her listening heart. After testifying, first of all, that he was, you know, he told him who he was, that he was Abraham's servant, he spoke of the great wealth of his master, Abraham. But you notice that he was very careful to give proper credit for Abraham's wealth. He didn't say my, my uh, master's a very wealthy man, you know, because he's so intelligent and he accumulated all this wealth. He gave the credit to who? The Lord. He says it was the Lord who had blessed his master greatly. It was the Lord who had made his master great. And it was the Lord who gave him all those things, you know, flocks and herds and gold and silver, men servants, maid servants, camels and asses, etc. Now, in speaking of the immense wealth that the Lord had provided for his master, Eliezer was enhancing Isaac because, as he also stated in verse 36, Isaac was the solitary heir of all of that wealth. And then notice, not only did he speak of the immense wealth of Isaac, but he spoke of Isaac's miracle birth. He said that Isaac was born to his mother when she was old. In other words, he was telling them when she was too old. You know, she was past menopause. Of course, we know she'd also been barren. And she was 90 years old. So he was speaking, he was testifying to the fact that this was a miraculous birth and that therefore Isaac was a very special man in the plan of God. Now, this is exactly how it should be with believers who are indwelled by the Holy Spirit. This should be how it is when we are sharing the gospel message with other people. The message, as we said before, is the whole purpose of our mission. Without the message about the Son, we have no mission. You know, we might as well just go on home to be with the Lord in heaven if we don't have a message about the Son. If there was no message about the Son, we wouldn't even be saved to begin with. But Christ is to be the main theme, of course, when we witness to people to accept him and to become part of his church, his bride. So just as Eliezer did, we should emphasize the greatness of the Father, who, of course, owns not just many flocks and many herds and, and a whole lot of silver and gold and camels and asses and men servants and maidservants. He owns everything, doesn't he? Everything, the whole universe, because it's his by way of creation and it's his by right of redemption. So he owns them all, and his son is the heir 
to all that the Father possesses. So our message, like Eliezer's speech here about Isaac, should include the fact of the wealth, the riches that can be ours in Christ Jesus, or can be the one to whom we're speaking of, to, to the one to whom we're witnessing, you know, the riches in Christ. Now, I'm not just talking about the physical, but mostly the spiritual riches. And then what we should also do is we should include in our presentation of the gospel the miracle birth of Jesus Christ, God's Son. It's his virgin birth, this very important doctrine, his virgin birth which lets us know that he was sinless. He had no human father. He had a stepfather, Joseph, but he had no blood human father. And therefore, what does that mean? Well, he didn't inherit the Adamic sin nature as every other human being has inherited. Every other human being is born in sin. Christ, his virgin birth, testifies. It's very critical to include this because it testifies to his sinlessness and to his uniqueness as both man and God. He was born of Mary, a human, but also born of the Holy Spirit. So he's 100% man, but he's also 100% God. If you take the virgin birth away, then Christ is just another human, a sinful human being like any one of us. No matter how great of an example he was, no matter how great of a teacher, no matter how great of a prophet, no matter how great of a person he was, his death would have saved how many people? Nobody. Not one person. Not even himself. Rather than a savior, he would have just been a martyr. And he would have been a crazy one. He would have been a crazy martyr. Because he would have, he, well, we know, he claimed deity. He claimed to be equal with God. I and the Father are one. So, you know, you, you can't, with, with Jesus Christ, he's either a lunatic or he's a liar or he's Lord. You have no other option. So the virgin birth, and that's it's interesting to see how he included the fact that Isaac was miraculously born because both his father and his mother had been beyond the age of, of reproducing. Another significant truth to reemphasize is that Eliezer, who is, again, as I mentioned, a type of the Holy Spirit, did not put the emphasis on himself. I should have had this up there. He didn't emphasize himself. Everything that he spoke was in order to exalt the master's son, to emphasize the master's son, and to enlighten about the master's son. He, and we, too, as we're giving the gospel message, we must be cautious of all those, or as Christians, we should be cautious of all those within Christendom who make a mistake by placing the greatest emphasis not on the, the Master's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, but on the Holy Spirit. Just think about this. What would Abraham have thought if Rebekah had returned to Canaan in love with Eliezer? It sounds kind of crazy, but he wouldn't have been too happy with his servant. Uh, what would he have thought of his servant if he had, uh, if the servant had gone down uh, up to um, Haran and had won Rebecca to himself? 
rather than to Isaac. You know, if he had talked about how great he was and, and she fell in love with him. So, I mean, it sounds ridiculous, but we, there are ministries that go on that really do that. We need to be beware of ministries in which the Holy Spirit is the one who is, you know, they're all God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit are all equal as far as being, you know, equal members of the Trinity, but they have different roles. Okay, so we have to be careful of a ministry in which the Holy Spirit is lifted up and exalted more than the Lord Jesus Christ because the Holy Spirit's role was not to lift up and exalt himself. It was to speak of and lift up and exalt the Lord Jesus Christ. So just don't get all of that mixed up in your theology, okay? When you look at it with a story like this, you see that it is kind of ridiculous. All right, let's move on now. We've talked about the master's heir. Now let's look at the mission assignment, verses 37 to 44. Eliezer keeps speaking, and he says in verse 37, And my master made me swear, saying, Thou shalt not take a wife to my son of the daughters of the Canaanites, in whose land I dwell. But thou shalt go unto my father's house, and to my kindred, and take a wife unto my son. And I said unto my master, Peradventure the woman will not follow me. And he said unto me, The Lord before whom I walk, will send his angel with thee, and prosper thy way, and thou shalt take a wife for my son of my kindred and of my father's house. Then shalt thou be clear from this my oath when thou comest to my kindred, and if they, if they, give, thee, if they give not thee one. In other words, if they won't let their daughter go, then he's going to be cleared of the vow. Thou shalt be clear from my oath. Verse 42. And I came this day unto the well and said now here's a prayer O Lord God of my master Abraham if now thou do prosper my way which I go behold I stand by the well of water and it shall come to pass that when the virgin cometh forth to draw water and I say to her give me I pray thee a little water of thy pitcher to drink and she say to me both drink thou and I will also draw for thy camels let the same be the woman whom the Lord hath appointed out for my master's son. So following his testimony about Isaac, next we find that Eliezer recapped, in summary form here, the entire account of his mission. He included the details of Abraham's specific instructions to not take a wife for Isaac from the daughters of the Canaanites, who were all pagan worshipers, but he was to specifically go to his own kindred, to Abraham's kindred, and take a wife there for his son, for Abraham's son. He told Rebekah and her family about his question. Remember his question? Eliezer had a question. He said, you know, what if I find this girl who seems to meet all of the qualifications, and yet she will not be willing to follow me back because she's never seen Isaac, you know, and she wants to see him, so she won't come back with me. What then? Will I still be under obligation to the vow that I am taking? And then he told them also about Abraham's assurance that, that the Lord would send his angel to guide him right to the, you know, the proper girl, and he would make his journey prosperous. And he also told him that you know Abraham would clear him from the oath that he had taken if the girl or if the girl's family either one would not allow 
her to go back with him or if she refused to go back with him to be Isaac's wife. And then he recounted to them his prayer to the Lord for guidance and how he specifically asked uh, that the young maiden, the vir- a virgin who would come out to the well, remember it was the early evening of the day when all the girls of the city would come out to the well to get the water for their households, that the young virgin who, would, uh, who was to be Isaac's wife that it would be made obvious to him that she was the right one because when he would approach this girl to ask for a drink of water, not only would she give him a drink, but then she would willingly volunteer to also water all of his camels, which was a tremendous task, as we talked about. So that's what he talked about in verses 37 to 44, the mission assignment. Now let's look at the miracle answer. Verses 45 to 49. He says, And before I had done speaking in mine heart, behold, Rebekah came forth with her pitcher on her shoulder, and she went down unto the well. Remember, there were steps that went down. And drew water. And I said unto her, Let me drink, I pray thee. And she made haste and let down her pitcher from her shoulder and said, Drink. And I will give thy camels drink also. So I drank, and she made the camels drink also. And I asked her and said, Whose daughter art thou? And she said, The daughter of Bethuel, Nahor's son, whom Milcah bare unto him. And I put the earring upon her face and the bracelets upon her hands. And I bowed down my head and worshiped the Lord and blessed the Lord God of my master Abraham, which had led me in the right way to take my master's brother's daughter unto his son. And now, and here's his proposal of marriage, basically. And now, if ye will deal kindly and truly with my master, tell me. And if not, tell me that I may turn to the right hand or to the left. For the first time, now remember, he's seated at their table. They were going to eat. The whole family is around. They're all hearing this story for the first time. So Rebecca herself, for the very first time, is hearing the significance of what she had done out there at the well. She didn't know all this. She learned that she had actually been the answer to a very specific prayer. And that prayer had been asked for the purpose of finding a suitable wife for this very special, you know, this miraculously born son and this very wealthy son of her own granduncle, her granduncle Abraham. She's hearing this for the first time. And something in her heart must have begun to warm as she heard the servant speak. She had never seen the man Isaac about whom the servant was speaking and for whom he had come seeking, you know, a bride. But already we can imagine from what we hear later on that she was already beginning to feel drawn to him. And why wouldn't she be? After all, God is the matchmaker in this particular setting. And he knew what he was doing. So you know that as Rebecca was hearing these words, from the servant, that she was being wooed to Isaac. So Eliezer finished this account 
of the well episode by recapping how Rebecca had come along and how she had become whoops, a perfect answer, perfect answer to his very specific prayer. She not only gave him a drink, but she had also then offered to water his camels. Got so carried away with the story I got behind on my pictures here. And she carried through. Remember how we talked about the fact that she didn't just offer, and after, you know, so many, 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 many trips from the, the well to the watering trough, she didn't say, whew, this is too hard, forget it, let your men do it, and finish the job. She carried through with that very tedious and difficult task. And he told her then how he had found out that she was a, indeed a relative of Abraham. And what did he do then? When he found that out, he had given her, actually I think the, it was the reverse. He, he gave her the, the gold earring and he gave her two very expensive gold bracelets, which he, we, we find out in this recap that he put them on her himself. We didn't learn that before. He actually put them on her himself. And then finally, he completed his message by telling how he had bowed his head and he had worshipped the Lord for having led him in the right way to take his master's brother's daughter to Isaac, to wed Isaac. And then when Eliezer finished his recap of the events which had occurred just, you know, an hour or so before this, he put the ball in their court, the family's court, by asking Rebecca's family whether they would deal kindly with his master or not. So even though you know, we don't read it in English, what he was really doing, and they knew this, was that he was giving a um, proposal of marriage for the hand of Rebekah for his master's son, for Isaac. And he was asking whether they would give their consent or not. You know, tell me. Tell me right now. I don't want to waste any more time. I'm on an important errand from my master regarding his son, so tell me right now, will you give your consent or not? But we notice that Eliezer, just like the Holy Spirit, did not force the issue. Although he witnessed of the glories of Isaac and of the hand of God, he witnessed of the hand of God, you know, which had providentially brought Isaac, I mean, Rebekah, to the place of, of critical decision regarding Isaac. I'm, I didn't mean to say that. That it providentially brought Rebekah to the well. You know, that was God's divine providence. He, he witnessed of all that, but yet we find here that he really didn't use a high-pressure technique to coerce her family or her into doing this, into being willing to let her go or, you know, coercing her into the fact that, you know, you have to do this. There was no force here. He didn't argue the case. He didn't try to bribe them. Uh... The Holy Spirit does all that he can do to woo the individual to Christ, but he doesn't force the decision. Just like Christ, he is a gentleman. He doesn't force anybody. You can't force somebody to get saved. He glorifies the Son, and he uses the word, of course, the living word, the Bible, about the Son in order to convict of one's need for the Son. And, and he testifies of... You know, the circumstances, divine providence, we could say, that have worked that person, that God has orchestrated to get that person to the place where the Holy Spirit is working with them. You know, he testifies of that. He brings them to a place of decision 
but he doesn't force a positive response. Because, you know, God didn't want us to be robots. He, he wants us to freely choose. But although, and, and it isn't wrong for us as believers to, to urge somebody who we are witnessing to, to be saved. You know, we want to urge them of the importance of it and that they need to do this. But we must take caution that we don't attempt to, to force a decision with uh, argumentation or with emotionalism. You know, you think especially of children. You can do a lot to force a child to make a decision. Or, you know, we shouldn't force people with false promises. Have you ever heard, sometimes you hear this on TV, I mean, they, they promise you everything. You know, life will be a bowl of cherries, it'll be a rose guy, is that true? Mm -mm. If you become a Christian, a lot of times things get a whole lot more difficult. So we shouldn't force a decision with, with uh, argumentation or emotionalism or, or false promises or anything else. Forced decisions are um, usually those which aren't real decisions. I'd say in, in many, many, many of the cases, a forced decision is uh, someone maybe that you have led to the Lord but the Holy Spirit, God hasn't led them to the Lord, so it isn't even a real salvation. But we should follow Eliezer's example here because he gave the facts about Isaac and about the, you know, God's providence and how everything was brought together and how the Lord was leading and it was an you know, answer to his prayer request. He gave all those facts, but he left the result to Rebecca. He left the decision up to Rebecca. Now, some of you might say, wait a minute, Rebecca didn't have any real choice in this matter here. But we will see, you know, it looks initially like it was up to her father and her brother. But as we go further, we'll see that it really came down, the decision really came down to Rebecca. Based on what we learn in verses 57 and 58, and also what is indicated to us about the closeness of Rebecca's family, we find that she did have the final say in this matter. There can be little doubt that if Rebecca's facial expression, you know, while Eliezer's sitting there at the table and, he, and she's hearing all this and then she hears about the proposal of marriage, if her facial expression showed that she was adamantly opposed to this proposal or if she began to cry over the prospect of leaving her home and family or if she even ventured to speak out and say that she didn't believe the servant's report about Isaac and that he probably was exaggerating and how anyway could they really trust him when they had just met him or that she didn't want to leave her mother and her father and her family and her home or if she said that she had her heart set on some other young man living there in Haran you know any one of these responses from her would have very likely caused her brother and her father to turn down Eliezer's proposal but the message of the servant had been very stirring, and it had been quite convicting, convincing. And his earlier gifts and his heavily laden entourage of men and camels, all of these things confirmed that he spoke the truth about Abraham's wealth. So as we find in the next verses... The response which was given by Laban, Rebekah's brother, and her father Bethuel, Bethuel was in the affirmative. All right, let's look at the response. First of all, the family's response in verses 50 and 51, okay? 
Then Laban and Bethuel answered and said, The thing proceedeth from the Lord. We cannot speak unto thee bad or good. Behold, Rebekah is before thee. Take her and go, and let her be thy master's son's wife, as the Lord hath spoken. For the one and only time in this whole chapter, we hear from Bethuel. Remember last week I said, you know, Bethuel was living. That's Rebekah's father. We know he's living because he speaks. Well, here's the one and only time he speaks. And he speaks with Laban. He responded with his son to Eliezer's testimony and the understood request for Rebekah's hand in marriage to Isaac. Now, because Laban's name is mentioned first, notice it says Laban and Bethuel, which, you know, that's kind of strange. You would think Bethuel was the father who would be mentioned first. So because Laban's name is mentioned first, this might indicate to us that Bethuel, the father, was either too old or too ill to really carry on the leadership role of this home. But whatever the situation might have been, we do find here that both son and father were agreed that regardless of whatever they personally might have thought about this situation, whether bad or good, and notice they do say bad first, uh, that it was obvious that the Lord himself was already, you know, he had already orchestrated this match. And therefore, they must go along with him. That's what they say in verse 30, 51. They told Eliezer that Rebekah was free to go back with him in order to marry his master's son. And they say, as the Lord hath spoken. Although both son and father agreed to the marriage arrangement here, the tone of their words does not indicate a whole lot of personal joy over the matter. And this is especially hinted at by the words, we speak, we cannot speak unto the bad or good. In other words, what they were saying here was that their personal opinion, you know, whether they thought this was a bad idea, a bad plan, or a good idea, or a good plan, and as I said, they did use the word bad first, that had no relevance, you know, what their personal opinion was about it since God had already chosen for them. And this was really true. What they said here was really true. God had chosen Rebekah as the girl to marry Isaac. He had, in fact, he had chosen her before she was actually born. Actually, if you want to get right down to it, he had chosen her before he even laid the foundation to the world. Likewise, he has chosen, before he even laid the foundation for the earth, he has chosen all born-again members of the Bride of Christ, the church. In fact, uh, we find that Isaac oops, had already gone through, he had already um, gone through his experience on Mount Moriah before Rebekah ever knew about him, before Rebekah knew him. You know, he'd gone through what we could call the death and resurrection there on Mount Moriah, which is the same place where Calvary was. And that again fits into the picture in prophetic type of Christ because he had already experienced Calvary and his death and his resurrection before the church came into existence, came into the picture, right? So we see all this follows exactly what actually ha happened with Christ. 
So, again, we see Christ pictured throughout the life of Isaac and the church pictured by Rebekah. Seeing how industrious and kind and servant-hearted Rebekah was, we can well understand, you know, you can empathize with how her family must have felt about this prospect of losing her. You know, I don't think that we would expect their tone to be overjoyed. This was a sudden shock to them. They obviously deeply loved her and, uh, and could only imagine the void that would be left in their hearts when she, was a, when she was gone. She was a special young lady. We saw this last week. Allowing her to depart with Eliezer to travel back some 500 miles to marry Isaac, whom they had never met, would indicate to them, and this would indicate that they would probably never see her again. 500 miles in those days, that was a long trip. We'll see a little bit that it was pro- probably took him about three weeks to travel, and it wasn't an easy trip on the back of a camel. So they might never see her again. So this was difficult. It was a very difficult matter, especially for the parents. I'm sure it was also difficult for Laban as the brother, the sibling. It's never, ever easy. Those of you who are parents, you know this. It's never easy to turn children over completely to the Lord and to the Lord's will. Uh, But we must, especially, you know, if the Lord's will is to send them away from us. That isn't easy. You know, you think of uh, especially missionaries when they have to say goodbye to their children and they go overseas somewhere where they don't even know if they'll ever see them again. But we must do this. We must do this. They are his anyway, aren't they? They belong to the Lord. And where he might lead them or send them is his business. And we must not do anything to attempt to interfere. You know, if Rebecca's family had refused to let her go, they wouldn't truly be loving her. They would have deprived her of the tremendous joy and love and the life that she would have with Isaac. They would be hindering the work of God's plan. And therefore, they would block not only the blessings that God had for their daughter, but also the blessings that he would have for them. So it's a very, very tragic thing, really. I know it's, the, it's a difficult thing. I mean, I know experientially how difficult it was when we sent our son to Burma, Myanmar, not knowing if he'd we'd ever see him again. It's a, it's a very difficult thing to do, but it is a terribly tragic thing when an individual's family gets in the way of his or her response to the call of the Lord. Whether that's the call to salvation, that's the most tragic interruption of all. But even if it's an interruption, an interference to the call of service. So we need to be aware of that. And, and I see it happen. You see it happen, too, where parents just don't want to let their children go, even if that's the Lord beckoning them. Dr. Henry Morris writes this. He says, quote, It seems strange at first that the question was not directed to Rebecca, nor did the reply come from her. It was proper, surely, for the father's permission to be sought as well as the brother's in this case, But were the arrangements to be made altogether without the bride's participation? A more likely suggestion is that it was so obvious to all that Rebecca wanted to go that it was unnecessary even to ask. 
She had heard enough about Isaac from the servant and was sure that if the Lord had led him to her, he would also lead her to him. It is not at all unlikely that she herself had been wondering, she was a typical girl, who her husband would be, and perhaps had even been praying for God to lead the right one to her. In any case, she was anxious to go. End of quote. Okay, let's move on to the servant's response. We've seen the family's response. Now let's see the servant's response to the family's response. And under this, we're going to look at the fact that his response actually came in four ways. And I have called them the earnest gratitude, the elegant dowry, eat and drink, and early departure. So let's look at verse 52 his earnest gratitude, verse 52. And it came to pass that when Abraham's servant heard their words, now they've just given their consent, okay, that Rebekah can go with him. When he heard their words, he worshiped the Lord, bowing himself to the earth. So before doing anything else, before dispensing the dowry gifts, or before eating, or before speaking about the time of his departure, what does he do? He pauses. This was a godly man. This was a godly servant. He paused to give his earnest thanks to the Lord. God had been gracious to have gone before him and to have worked in the life of Rebekah also so that she had not only been born into Abraham's family, but that she had become such a lovely woman. You know, with all the credentials and all the character qualities that he could possibly, that Abraham or Isaac or Eliezer, that any one of the three of them could possibly desire for a suitable wife for Isaac. God had truly guided Eliezer's steps to this particular young maid. And her steps, he guided her steps as well. <clears throat> God had answered Eliezer's prayers exceeding abundantly above all that he could have ever asked or thought. And he was very grateful. He was obviously a man of prayer because when he received the consent from Laban and Bethuel, without hesitating, the first thing he did was to worship the Lord, prostrate himself to the ground before the Lord in very genuine, sincere gratitude. All right, let's look at the elegant dowry. Now, this is his second response. The elegant dowry in verse 54, the first part of verse 54, it says, um, oops, excuse me, 53. It says, and the servant brought forth jewels of silver and jewels of gold and raiment and gave them to Rebekah. He gave also to her brother and to her mother precious things. So the second response of Eliezer, after he had fervently thanked the Lord, was to dispense wedding gifts to Rebecca and to also give dowry gifts, we're told, to her brother and her mother. He not only lavished Rebecca with expensive gifts of silver and uh, uh, jewelry of silver and gold, but he gave her new raiment. You know, he gave her new clothing, which had been provided by Isaac's very wealthy father, Abraham. When we, as members of the Bride of Christ, the Church, accept the Spirit's call to come to Christ by faith, 
the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, immediately opens up the treasures of God's grace to our eyes. The Spirit of God, just like Eliezer, is the great gift giver. The Spirit is the gift giver. He gives a wide variety of spiritual gifts to believers. Furthermore, we, like Rebecca, are given new raiment, which is provided by the Lord himself. We are clothed in fine linen, white and clean, as it tells us in Revelation 19.8, which uh, pictures the righteousness of Christ. Uh, Christ, the righteousness of Christ himself. You know, the, the old filthy rags of our own righteousness are replaced by his fine linen, white and clean raiment. So all this, again, is a picture of what happens with the bride of Christ. You know, as each individual comes into the, the church, we're given the spiritual gifts and we are given the fruit of the Spirit and all kinds of wonderful things, a, he a home in heaven. We're also covered in Christ's righteousness. And then it says he gave valuable gifts to Laban and to Rebekah's mother as well. And these were the uh, expected dowry gifts. And they were very elegant, very expensive gifts which would reflect the great wealth of the bridegroom who was the sole heir of all that his father possessed. Okay, what's the third thing he did? He ate and drank, finally. Let's look at verse 54a. It says, and they did eat and drink. He and the men, don't forget about those men that were with him, he and the men that were with him and tarried all night. I'm going to stop right there. So the message had been delivered, the consent had been given, the thanks to the Lord had been offered, the gifts had been dispensed, so finally it was fellowship time. <laughs> it was time to eat. Eliezer had put first things first. His priorities had been absolutely right. After winning the hand of Rebekah for his master's son, he could now sit down and sup with her and her family. He could enjoy fellowship with them over a meal. So he and the men who had traveled with him, they enjoyed this meal. I guess it had to be heated up because it sat there for a while. <laughs> they enjoyed the meal and the, and the drink which had been prepared for them and then were told that they tarried all night. That means that they spent the night there. And we can only hope that they went to bed relatively early because they needed a good night's rest. For upon arising in the morning, Eliezer made a shocking announcement. He was ready to begin the long trip back to Canaan and to take Rebekah with him that very day. That wasn't going to set over too well with the family. So let's look at early departure, the latter part of verse 54. It says, And they rose up in the morning, and he, Eliezer, said, Send me away unto my master. He shocked Laban and Mrs. Bethuel. I don't know what else to call her because she doesn't have a first name here in this account. Uh, and we'll find out they were the ones that he talks to. He shocked Laban and Mrs. Bethuel by announcing first thing in the morning that he wanted to make an immediate departure. Now, just think about this. They had only just heard his message concerning Isaac 
and had just consented to giving their daughter and sister Rebecca to be Isaac's bride probably about 12 hours earlier or maybe even less than 12 hours earlier. Surely the servant would not be so abrupt to take her from them so quickly. I mean, there wouldn't even be time to get used to the idea of her being absent. There would hardly even be time to say goodbye. There certainly wouldn't be enough time to get all her stuff packed up and, and to send out wedding announcements and have uh, wedding showers. And <laughs> so we can find out that this idea met with resistance. And everybody in this room, being a female, in our flesh, we can really understand why. I mean, you know, I'd have a little fit. If somebody wanted to take my daughter away and I never see her again, they just told me right then. Even if I knew it was the Lord's will <laughs> in the flesh. <laughs> but was this resistance a good thing? Or was Eliezer's suggestion the wise thing in this case? So let's see. Let's move now to the third part of our outline, the resistance, verses 55 to 58. And under this section, we're going to look at a proposed delay a persistent demand that comes from him, Eliezer, and then a prompt decision. And who makes that? Rebecca herself. All right, a proposed delay, verse 55. And her brother and her mother said, Let the damsel abide with us a few days, at the least ten. After that, she shall go. All right, that's all we're going to look at right now. Now, I could be wrong here. I could be wrong. But I get the feeling that perhaps Bethuel, the father, was the godly influence in this family. Although at the time of chapter 24, I believe he may have been a very old or a very sick man. And I say this because when the joint response of he and Laban was given to Eliezer's message, you know, we looked at already, it was one which immediately recognized the Lord's hand. I mean, it was a positive response. They said, when Laban and his father spoke together, the answer was, Behold, Rebekah is before thee, take her and go, and let her be thy master's wife, thy master's son's wife, as the Lord hath spoken. However, when Laban was merely just with his mother, as we see in verse 55, now the response was not so positive, and it actually countered the first response to take Rebecca and go. Now the response was essentially, don't take her. Delay. Let her stay for at least a few days, or how about 10 days, and then she may go. You see, at first, with Bethuel's in, uh, influence, Laban had agreed that they couldn't say anything about the matter because it was obvious that the Lord God had been leading uh, Eliezer. You know, whether their opinion was bad or good, it made no difference. But now, however, when Laban is with his mother, they're saying that their opinion does matter and that it wasn't good for, the, for Eliezer to take his their sister and their daughter from them. They wanted her to stay, you know, at least for a while. So I get the sense, and as I said, I could be wrong, but I get the sense that when Bethuel was around, 
he influenced the family for the Lord. Perhaps, then, that is where Rebecca got her spirituality from. Perhaps she got her godly character from her father. On the other hand, when Laban was solely in charge, perhaps because, you know, Bethel, Bethuel was too old or too sickly to always be involved, and when Laban was with his mother, matters weren't quite so spiritual. Perhaps Laban's character was more influenced by his mother. And perhaps this is why only the mother and not the father was given gifts by Eliezer. You know, it said when he gave the gifts, he gave them to Laban and to the mother. But there's no mention of gifts being given to the father. Perhaps the mother, like the son, had her eyes on the treasures. Whereas Bethuel had his focus on doing the Lord's will. And all of this, of course, is just speculation. Just totally speculation. But at any rate, when the joint response did come from Laban and his mother with regard to Eliezer taking Rebekah with them immediately, with him immediately, it was a response of resistance. It's ironic, if you think about it, to have earlier agreed that the Lord had been in this entire mission. You know, that he had been leading Eliezer all along the way, right to Rebekah, and yet to now suggest that the Lord was no longer leading Eliezer. You know, the Lord wasn't leading him to return and go right back. That's what they're saying, essentially. Abraham's servant wanted to depart at once, but uh, Laban and his mother were attempting to alter his plan. Even after they saw that he was a man of prayer, you know, that he was a man who was being guided by the Lord's angel and, and by the Lord himself. They weren't, weren't ready to send her away. And on the surface, there may seem to be, I know some of you are thinking this, you're thinking on the surface there seems to be nothing wrong with such a request, with delaying just for a few days or maybe ten. You know, naturally, Naturally, Rebecca's family would want to hang on to her as long as possible. They might even want, as I said before, you know, to have a wedding shower, and uh, so to speak, and uh, to have time to make the announcements to all the relatives and the other friends in Heron. They would want time to get used to the idea of her departure and to get all of her things packed up and ready to go. So on the surface, this really doesn't look like an unreasonable request. And they probably expected Abraham's servant to give in to what seemed to be a very simple request. After all, he and his men had just made, I don't have the map, but they had just made a 500-mile um, trip because it's 500 miles, I told you this before, from Hebron up to Haran. And since camels travel approximately 25 miles a day, this would mean that they had been traveling for approximately three weeks. And they had only just arrived in Haran the previous evening. So surely a 10-day rest would be something that they would enjoy, especially if Eliezer was an old man. You know, they would enjoy this before turning around and going back another 500 miles in another three weeks with no Holiday Inns or Hampton Inns or, you know, to stay in. That's not an easy trip. However, as I've said before, Abraham had chosen the right servant 
for this assignment. He had chosen a man who was faithful to his task, a man who was wise, a man who was completely dedicated to completing his mission just as quickly and as efficiently as possible and getting the bride safely and securely into the arms of her bridegroom. He knew that the Lord was, you know, had clearly led him every step of the way to Rebekah, and therefore there should be no delay in following the Lord's will on the return trip to complete that mission. But his persistent demand of verse 56 must have shocked and we know upset both Laban and his mother. Let's look at that persistent demand, verses 55 and, I mean, 56 and 57. After they just, you know, begged him essentially to wait at least 10 days, he says uh, unto them, verse 56, Hinder me not, seeing the Lord hath prospered my way. Send me away that I may go to my master. And they said, We will call the damsel and inquire at her mouth. What does he say? Hinder me not. It's not a good thing to hinder the work of the Holy Spirit, is it? Hinder me not. That tells us immediately that he saw potential danger in this request for a delay. You know, I thought about the fact that he and Abraham were so much alike in so many ways. They're both, you know, they had known each other a long time, and the servant actually became like the master. You know how um, Abraham had been wise in, in knowing that it, it wasn't a good thing to let Isaac out of the country? Remember how he said, whatever the situation might be, don't let Isaac leave the land of Canaan. That was wise because he understood the temptations that could come to a young person. I mean, relatively speaking, 40 was young back in those days. And that Isaac might get delayed in Haran. You know, the family might persuade him to stay there 10 days. 10 days could become 10 years. <laughs> and now we see that the servant, likewise, is very, very wise in... Um, and getting Rebecca away from the family right away. And also he reminded them that his master was waiting for him. He was responsible not only to follow God's leading in this situation, but he was responsible to complete the task that his master had given him on behalf of the master's son. Eliezer knew that Abraham and Isaac would both be, you know, anxiously awaiting his return. Primarily, of course, not his return, but awaiting the return of the bride for Isaac. So the servant, again, we see the servant had his priorities right. Just as he would not eat until he had given his message about the son, he would not rest until he had delivered the bride to the son. The Holy Spirit's work, you know, today is still not done. And he does not rest from his job of calling out the bride of Christ, and then we'll see this next week, of guiding her during her journey to the bridegroom. He guides her, and he guards her, he protects her, and he grooms her, and he teaches her all about the Son all the way back, you know, he, his job isn't done until the day that he delivers her safely into the arms of her bridegroom. 
Furthermore, Eliezer was wise enough to understand that a delay in departure would not really do any good and could very possibly bring potential danger. Rebecca's mother and, and brother Laban would be no more ready for her to leave, you think about this, after a 10-day delay than they were that very morning. In fact, it would probably be even harder for them because they would have had 10 sad days. Those wouldn't be 10 joyful days. I know, you know, like whenever one of my children is getting ready to leave, I'm really sad. Every time I, I see them sitting in their bedroom or doing something, I think that's the last time I'm going to see that, you know. And it's so sad. They could be, it's almost better to finally get them out the door because then they're gone. Then I can start anticipating when I'll see them again. But so it could have been 10 sad days, each day filled with the thoughts of her, you know, imminent departure and how difficult it was going to be when that moment came, that last hug, you know, the last time very possibly that they would see her. And also 10 days would mean that they would have 10 days to rethink. This is where the danger really comes in. 10 days to rethink this whole situation. Possibly a delay would cause them to wonder over the swiftness of their decision. Maybe they had been wrong in letting Rebecca go with a man that they really didn't know to a place that they had never been in order to marry a man they had never seen. Maybe that wasn't so wise. Maybe Bethuel wasn't so wise. Maybe he was too old and decrepit you know, to have made a rational decision. Maybe he was senile. Maybe they shouldn't do this. After all, there were plenty of young men in Haran that she could marry. I mean, she was beautiful. We were told that. She was hardworking. Her family was rather well off. Uh, and and she, couldn't, she wouldn't have trouble finding an eligible young man there close by. And then they could keep her with them. And they could watch their grandchildren grow up. Right, Leslie? <laughs> and also... As happened later with Jacob, when he met up with Laban, ten days could easily have become ten weeks, which could easily have then become ten years. How many years did they become in Jacob's case? Fourteen years. So a delay could easily become a period of danger. It could easily become a period of great strain and possible misunderstandings, you know, between even Rebecca and her family. You know, she'd say, I want to go, I want to go. And they would say, we don't want you to go. What's the matter? Don't you love us? You know, you could see how there could be a lot of trouble. And there could even be the danger of a complete reneging on the, on the consent issue. You know, well, we've changed our mind. She cannot go. John Butler writes this. He says, quote, procrastination is subtle. Under the guise of putting something off a while, it really is trying to put it off forever. Though the family had earlier consented to letting Rebecca become Isaac's wife, they were now recanting through procrastination. The servant, however, saw through this procrastination and immediately and wisely protested. Procrastination is also used to oppose sinners coming to Christ. It is a very subtle tool of the devil 
for it does not appear to man as an overt, vehement rejection of the gospel. It does not openly and obviously scorn the gospel message. message. It simply says to put it off for a while, you know, put off the decision for a while. Don't be in a hurry. Take your time. Don't get excited about it. Think it over. But putting it off a while only encourages more delay, which finally leads to denial. Procrastination gives time for the enemy of our souls to move in and to begin his clever but corrupt arguments to try and persuade otherwise. It gives time for the enemy to build up his forces so he can attack with greater power and hence greater effectiveness, end of quote. Well, even after the servant had given reference to the Lord's leading in his mission and in his decision, you know, this was the Lord leading him to, to leave early, even after that, Laban and Rebekah's mother decided that they would leave the final decision up to who? up to Rebecca herself. They probably thought that she would agree with them, you know, over a 10-day delay. Or I don't think they would have let her make the decision. And they, they would have, if, uh, if they had thought that, they would have just stayed there and kept arguing their case with Eliezer. So really in saying, we will call the damsel and inquire at her mouth, the decision we find the ultimate decision rested with Rebecca. And we're going to see this as we look at the next verse and the very specific question that they actually ask her. Let's look at verse 58, prompt decision. And they said, we will call the damsel and inquire at her mouth. And they called Rebecca and said unto her, wilt thou go with this man? And here's her answer. And she said, I will go. The first thing that I that I noticed personally when I looked at this verse or verse 58 <clears throat> here was the question, the actual question which Laban and Rebecca's mother put to her. They didn't ask her. You notice they didn't say, "Would you like to wait 10 days before you go with this man?" That's not the question, is it? What's the question? They said, "Will you go?" with this man. And that is not a delay question at all, is it? That is a decision question regarding the entire issue of the marriage proposal. When Bethuel had been on the scene, Rebecca was not asked. The hand of God had been beyond questioning. But things were different now because uh, Rebecca was given the entire choice, regardless of how obvious the Lord's leading had been. Now, of course, again, I cannot be dogmatic, and this is just my speculation here, but I can't help but wonder where Rebecca was when they had to call for her to come. It was the first thing in the morning, and Eliezer is talking with Laban and Mrs. Bethuel, and they have to call for Rebecca. So she's obviously somewhere else. Well, I wonder if she wasn't with her father. Remember we said that the mothers and the fathers had separate tents. I wonder if she wasn't with her father, perhaps at his bedside, perhaps talking with him about the greatness of the Lord's leading in this situation, and perhaps talking with him about all the wonders of her new bridegroom. But whatever the situation might have been, 
we find that when Rebecca was asked the question, Wilt thou go with this man? Her decision was prompt. I mean, it was definite. It was a great illustration of faith. She said, I will go. And those, you know, were the three most important words that she ever said in her life, (laughs) her entire existence. This is the decision that every single one of us, every single human being must make if they are to be married to the Lord Jesus and share his eternal home in heaven. And it's obvious from her prompt and her definitive response that that Rebecca's heart had been moved and it had been warmed by all that Abraham's servant had told her about Isaac. Uh, What he had told her about his master's son had obviously sparked a fire in her heart. Even though she had never laid eyes on him, she believed the servant's words about him and she was ready. She was ready. As hard as it would be, I mean, it wasn't easy for her. You know it wasn't easy for her to leave her mother and her father and her home and her brother and all her friends, everything that was ever familiar with her. It's not hard. I mean, it's not easy sometimes for families, you know, one family member to become a Christian and and have the family not understand. You know, but what did the Lord say? We need to love him more than mother and father and brother and sister and anything. You know, once you've put your hand to the plow, you need to go on, follow him. So it wasn't easy for her, but she was ready to commit the rest of her life to the master's son. Just as the servant, Eliezer, had not used any force or, or coercion or argument or pleading to get her to agree to marry Isaac, neither did she give any excuse or argument for not accepting that proposal. She had simply heard, faith cometh by what? Hearing, and hearing by the word of God. She had simply heard the message about Isaac. She had experienced the proof of God's divine providence in the situation. You know, how had God had led Eliezer right to her and how he had even led her to him. And she had seen the proof in the gifts of the jewels and the new raiment. She had seen the proof of the greatness and the generosity and the wealth of the master's son. So she was convinced um, that she wanted to belong to him, even though she had never physically seen him. And in this, as I'm sure you're getting as I'm talking, in this, Rebecca gives us a perfect picture of the faith of the church. Because we who make up the church, you know, all born-again believers make up the church, the bride of Christ, no matter what denomination you come out of, um, we who make up the church have never seen our bridegroom. Never seen him. Speaking of Christ, Peter wrote to believers, he said, Whom having not seen, ye love. In whom, though now ye see him not, yet believing, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. Remember the Lord's words to his own disciple Thomas, who we all call Doubting Thomas. He doubted the Lord's resurrection. 
until he saw it with his own eyes. The Lord said to him, Thomas, because thou hast seen me, thou hast believed. Blessed are they that have not seen and yet have believed. So see, Rebecca, so see, <laughs> Rebecca is just a perfect picture of you and I because we've never seen our bridegroom either. And yet we've been wooed to him by the Holy Spirit using the word of God and we love him and we feel like we, we know him. And uh, we can't wait for the day that we behold him face to face. So her prompt decision is an obvious teaching to unsaved man today. A delay in making the all-important decision for Christ is very dangerous because delays too often turn into denials. Some of you have probably seen that with those you have witnessed to. You know, well, I'm not yet. I'm not ready to make that decision. The next time you try to, to talk to them, they're even further away and further away and further away. Delays often lead to denials. And that's why the scripture admonishes us, or the unsaved man, now is the accepted time. Now is the day of salvation. Rebecca's decision placed her under the special providential care of the God of the universe. You know, the God of creation, the God of redemption. And she became a vital part of his amazing plan, which would bring salvation you know, available to all the world through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. If she had said, I will not go, and she had remained instead up there in Mesopotamia, then you and I, some 4,000 years later now, we would never have heard her, much less be studying all about her and how she is such a perfect picture, really, of us, the church, the bride of Christ. And so... My, my uh, admonishment to anyone in this room who may never have said, I will go, if you have never said yes to the Lord Jesus Christ, to the Holy Spirit as he's wooing you, maybe he's even wooing you right now, I pray that you would make the same decision that she made and that you will say, I will go because I can guarantee you, if you will go with him, step out in faith and trust in some, someone you've never seen, um, that those will be the most important three words that you can ever say, that you ever will say. All right, next week we'll have to look at the, um, the actual meeting, the journey along the way as the Holy Spirit uh, leads her and guides her and guards her and grooms her until the day when she lifts up her eyes and beholds her bridegroom face to face, and then they love one another. It's a beautiful picture that we'll have to wait till next week to, to hear the end of the story. <laughs> Let's close in prayer.